Sophie's World by Josephine Gardner. Aristotle continued. The final cause. Before we leave the subject of all living and dead things having a form that says something about their potential action, I must add that Aristotle had a remarkable view of casualty in nature. Today, when we talk about the cause of anything, we mean how it came to happen. The window pane was smashed because Peter hurled a stone through it. A shoe is made because the shoemaker sews several pieces of leather together. But Aristotle held that there were different types of cause in nature. Together, he named four different causes. It is important to understand what he meant by what he called the final cause. In the case of window smashing, it is quite reasonable to ask why Peter threw the stone. We are thus asking what his purpose was. There can be no doubt that purpose played a role also in the matter of the shoe being made. But Aristotle also took into account a similar purpose when considering the purely lifeless processes in nature. Here's an example. Why does it rain, Sophie? You have probably learned at school that it rains because the moisture in the clouds cools and condenses into raindrops that are drawn to the earth by the force of gravity. Aristotle would have nodded in agreement. But he would have also added that so far you have only mentioned three of the causes. The material cause is the moisture, the clouds, was there at the precise moment when the air cooled. The efficient cause is that the moisture cools and the formal cause is that the form or nature of the water is to fall to the earth. But if you stop there, Aristotle would add that it rains because plants and animals need rainwater in order to grow. This he called the final cause. Aristotle assigns the raindrops a life task or purpose. We would probably turn the whole thing upside down or say that plants grow because they find moisture. You can see the difference, can't you, Sophie? Aristotle believed that there is a purpose behind everything in nature. It rains so that plants can grow. Oranges and grapes grow so that people can eat them. That is not the nature of scientific reasoning today. We say that food and water are necessary conditions of life for man and beast. Had we not had these conditions, we would not have existed. But it is not the purpose of water or oranges to be food to us. In the question of casualty, then, we are tempted to say that Aristotle was wrong. But let us not be too hasty. Many people believe that God created the world as it is so that all his creatures could live in it. Viewed in this way, it can be naturally claimed that there is water in the rivers because animals and humans need water to live. But now we are talking about God's purpose. The raindrops and the waters of the river have no interest in our welfare. Logic. The distinction between form and substance plays an important part in Aristotle's explanation of the way we discern things in the world. When we discern things, we classify them in various groups or categories. I see a horse, then I see another horse, and another. The horses are not exactly alike. 
but they have something in common. And this common something is the horse's form. Whatever might be the distinctive or the individual belongs to the horse's substance. So we go around and pigeonholing everything. We put cows in cow sheds, horses in stables, pigs in pigsties, and chickens in chicken coops. The same happens when Sophia Munson tidies up her room. She puts her books on the bookshelf, her school books in her school bag, and her magazines in her drawer. Then she folds her clothes neatly and puts them in a closet, onto wear on one shelf, sweaters on another, and socks in a drawer on their own. Notice that we do the same thing in our minds. We distinguish between things made of stone, things made of wool, and things made of rubber. We distinguish between things that are alive and dead, and we distinguish between vegetable, animal, and human. Do you see, Sophie? Aristotle wanted to do a thorough clear- clearing up in nature's room. He tried to show everything in nature belongs to different categories and subcategories. Hermes is a live creature, more a mammal. More specifically, an animal. More specifically, a vertebrate. More specifically, a mammal. More specifically, a dog. More more specifically, a Labrador. More specifically, a male Labrador. Go into your room, Sophie. Pick up something, anything, from the floor. Whatever you take, you will find that what you are holding belongs to a higher category. The day you see something you are unable to classify, you will get a shock. If, for example, you discover a small watsit, and you can't really say whether it's animal, vegetable, or mineral, I don't think you would dare touch it. Saying animal, vegetable, and mineral reminds me of that party game where the victim is sent outside the room, and when he comes in again, he has to guess what everyone else is thinking of. Everyone has agreed to think of Fluffy, the cat, which, at the moment, is in the neighbor's garden. The victim comes in and begins to guess. The others must only answer yes or no. If the victim is a good astrotelian and therefore no victim, the party game could pretty much as follows. Is it concrete? Yes. Mineral? No. Is it alive? Yes. Vegetable? No. Animal? Yes. Is it a bird? No. Is it an animal? Yes. Is it a is it a whole animal? Yes. Is it a cat? Yes. Is it fluffy? Yeah. Laughter. So Aristotle invented that game. We ought to give Plato the credit for having invented hide and seek. Democritus has already been credited with having invented Lego. Aristotle was the meticulous organizer who set out to clarify our cons- concepts. In fact, he founded the science of logic. He demonstrated a number of laws governing the conclusions of proofs that were valid. One example will suffice. If I establish that all living creatures are mortal, first premise, and then establish that Hermes is a living creature, second premise, I can then elegantly conclude that Hermes is mortal. The example demonstrates that Aristotle's logic was based on the correlation of terms, in this case, living creature and mortal. Even though one has to admit that the above conclusion is 100% valid, we may also add that it is hardly to us anything new. We already knew that Hermes was mortal. He is a dog, and all dogs are living creatures, which are mortal unlike the rock of Mount Everest. 
Certainly we knew that, Sophie. But the relationship between classes of things is not always so obvious. From time to time, it can be necessary to clarify our concepts. For example, is it really possible that tiny little baby mice suckled just like lambs and piglets? Mice certainly do not lay eggs. When I did, when did I last see a mouse's egg? So they give birth to live live young, just like pigs and sheep. What we call animals that bury live young mammals, and mammals are animals that feed on their mother's milk. So we got there. We had the answer inside of us, but we had to think it through. We forgot for the moment that mice really do suckle from their mother. Perhaps it was because we have never seen a baby mouse being suckled. For the simple reason that mice are rather shy of humans when they suckle their young. Nature's scale. When Aristotle clears up in life, he first of all points out that everything in the natural world can be divided into two main categories. On the one hand, there are non-living things such as stones, drops of water, or clumps of soil. These things have no potentiality for change. According to Aristotle, non-living things can only change through external influence. Only living things have the potentiality for change. Aristotle divides living things into two different categories. One comprises plants, and the other creatures. Finally, these creatures can be also divided into two subcategories, namely animals and humans. You have to admit that Aristotle's categories are clear and simple. There's a decisive difference between a living and a non-living thing. For example, a rose and a stone. Just as there is a decisive difference between a plant and an animal. For example, a rose and a horse. I would also claim that there definitely is a difference between a horse and a man. But what exactly does this difference consist of? Can you tell me that? Unfortunately, I do not have time to wait while you write the answer down and put it in a pink envelope with a lump of sugar. So I'll answer myself. When Aristotle divides natural phenomena into various categories, his criterion is an object's characteristics, or more specifically, what it can do or what it does. All living things, plants, animals, humans, have the ability to absorb nourishment, to grow, and to propagate. All living creatures, animals and humans, have in addition the ability to perceive the world around them. And to move about. Moreover, all humans have the ability to think, or otherwise to order their perceptions into various categories and classes. So there are, in reality, no sharp boundaries in the natural world. We observe a gradual transition from simple growths to more complicated plants, from simple animals to more complicated animals. At the top of this scale is man. Who, according to Aristotle, lives the whole life of nature. Man grows and absorbs nourishment like plants. He has feelings and the ability to move like animals, but he also has a specific characteristic peculiar to humans, and that is the ability to think rationally. Therefore, man has a spark of divine reason. Sophie, yes, I did say divine. From time to time, Aristotle reminds us that there must be a God who started all movement in the natural world. Therefore, God must be at the very top of nature scale.
Aristotle imagined the movement of the stars and the planets guiding all movement on Earth. But there had to be something causing the heavens, heavenly bodies to move. Aristotle called this the first mover or God. The first mover itself is at rest, but it is the formal cause of the movement of the heavenly bodies and thus of all movements in nature.